0: safari around the world
1: these guys are, are like really tough like they don't there's no space in their brain for cute animals
0: <laughs> hello i'm john rossi i'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal when i'm on the road i spend as much time as possible visiting zoos aquariums rescues and rehab facilities now i want to share those places with you I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my RasaFari. Hi, hello, how are you? Welcome back to the podcast that is going to make you want to croak, but in a good way, the RasaFari Podcast. That's because today we are talking about frog conservation down in Panama. Y'all, this is a really cool episode with a story that I did not expect to hear when I booked it. Don't forget to check out at Ross Safari on Instagram and Facebook. If you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, please know that I will be doing a actually two live showings of the Firefox Guardian this upcoming Thursday, which is February 11th, 2021 at 7 and 10 p.m. Eastern Time on my Facebook, so make sure you are following along on Facebook there. And uh, yeah, that's cool. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited to bring that to my audience. As far as this episode, I don't want to say too much about it. The story kind of blew me away, and I want it to blow you away too. I'm just going to say that for me it was a real full-circle moment. Both Lou Perotti from episode 19 of the podcast, Who Works?, uh, up at Roger Williams Park Zoo in Providence, Rhode Island, and Vicki Poole at the Fort Worth Zoo in Texas, who you could hear on episode 49, uh, mentioned this project to me, and Vicki actually helped me get in touch with these two people that I'm interviewing today, Heidi Ross and Edgardo Griffith. Heidi is the project director, and Edgardo Griffith is a biologist and the president and founder of the Valle Amphibian Conservation Center Foundation. Their story is incredible. And what they are going through right now with the pandemic and some other issues, it's going to blow your mind. This is such a cool example of on-the-ground conservation and the real struggles that people face just to keep these amazing animals alive. So I'm not going to spoil it. So without further ado, here are Heidi Ross and Edgardo Griffith of the El Valle Amphibian Conservation Center and Foundation. So, why don't we start off by uh, you both telling me who you are and where you work and what you do there?
2: My name is Heidi Ross, and I'm the project director at the Alvay Amphibian Conservation Center Foundation in Alvay, Panama.
1: My name is Edgardo Griffith. I'm a biologist, I'm a president and founder of the Alvay Amphibian Conservation Center Foundation.
0: Very cool. And so, what is it that um, what is it that the, the, the foundation does?
1: Well, as any NGO, we when we were writing the bylaws and all that, we were kind of tried to keep it open to do mostly conservation and environmental education.
0: It's time for interrupting. 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 interrupting interrupting john mm. hey y'all just wanted to duck in here quick to let you know that an ngo is a nonprofit organization that operates independently of any government typically one whose purpose is to address a social or political issue such as oh i don't know conservation huh. anyway back to the interview not just for amphibians but uh for a different uh group of
1: groups of animals and at any given time, uh, in peril environments and such. But um, since last year, basically, uh, we've been focused, uh, most of what we do on uh, amphibian conservation, which is one of our our main projects, is the uh, ex situ, or um, the conservation of um, animals in captivity, amphibians specifically, uh, with the sole purpose of, uh, you know, reducing the, the extinction risk for some of the species that we keep.
0: It's obviously a, a very good goal and one that I am, I am very fond of. So thank you both for your work. Um, tell me a little bit about what is, uh, I mean, I know there are many threats, but what is the main threat to the amphibians that you guys are checking out right now?
1: Well, I'm going to answer part of that question and then I'm going to ask Heidi to continue uh, to better my answer <laughs> 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 or improve my answer, but you know the initially the the most um, immediate uh, cause of threat was the pathogen, the chytrid fungus, Batrachochytrium dendrobatidis, which we assumed back in 2005 and 2006 that if we didn't do something about it, uh, and based on what we were seeing, you know, throughout the 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 different times when this fungus arrived to uh, wild populations of amphibians, we didn't do something, these animals were going to disappear. And with that in mind, we talked to some friends and and convinced them, mostly from the United States, that the only option was to go out and collect these animals and put them in captivity at the same time there was a very kind of legit idea of, of at least for me as a panamanian that um i didn't consider collecting wild animals and sending them overseas or you know to some other country to take care of them so they didn't go extinct that wasn't the right approach so my my dream at the time was to build a facility and and create local capacity so we could Save or protect our animals in their native country, which in this case Panama. And, and with that in mind, that's where that's mostly what we've been doing. But since you asked, you know, recently, what's the most <laughs> um, important threat to amphibians? The thing is the the lack of of compromise and the lack of. Um, consciousness uh from population in general but most most importantly from those uh, the stakeholders in charge of making taking decisions and and providing uh the right environment for ngos like ours to fulfill our goals
0: makes sense is there anything that you'd like to add to that heidi
2: i think that what what the so there's when conservation i'm sure you you've heard the same story from you know everyone you talk to there's there's different layers of what, um, affects all these wild animals. So you have the contamination, the forest, um, the, um, altercations, and also the Panamanian golden frog used to be collected for the pet trade. Um, and so on top of all of that comes this fungus. And then on top of all of that comes this, this, this pandemic that humans (laughs) are going through. And I, so I think that, um, those are those are its biggest threats right now.
0: <laughs> how is the pandemic affecting uh, golden frogs and other amphibians?
2: Um, well, so right now, our our main model of how we are going to run our foundation and how we're going to continue the XC two um, part of our of our facility was to um, through um, education and tourism, so to open up an e- education center so people can come and see the frogs, and then at the same time, you know we can make money to continue our research and whatnot. Um, and so there's no tourism anymore. Um, Panama shut down for, for many, many months and now the airports are open, but we're still in restrictions and lockdowns and, and, and all the like. So it's really kind of hard when our sole model was based on that. And we also write grants and things, um, But in zoos in the United States were really, really huge funders of us as well. And they would send people down. So it wasn't just that they would send people down. It was our friends like Vicky Pool and, you know, different zoos. Um, And so they help us do investigations. They would also like fill our souls back up and have somebody to talk to um, that are our colleagues and our friends over the years. We've been doing this 16 years now. Um, and so that personally, that's really affected me a lot, just not having our colleagues come back and forth and helping us out. Um, so yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense. And I'm actually really glad you said that I feel like. So many conservation warriors that I speak to try to be so brave and so all for the animals and like, don't get me wrong, we're all for the animals here. But I also know that y'all are humans and and sometimes that matters. That stuff can really matter. So, um, you know, thank you for sharing that. Um Okay, so let's take a step back. We're going to get into all of the nitty-gritty about what y'all do. But first, I want to learn a little bit about the two of you. Um, So either one of you can start and just tell me where you're from and how you got to where you are right now.
2: Well, that's an interesting question because today actually is January 25th, and it's my 21-year anniversary of living in Panama.
0: Wow, congrats.
2: Yeah. So I'm originally from Wisconsin um, and I um, came to Panama in 2000 and with the Peace Corps. And I lived out in a little community um, working with agriculture, sustainable agriculture for three years. Um, and the day I was leaving that community to take on a different role in inside the Peace Corps as well, I met Edgardo. And, um, <laughs> and fell in love at love at first sight and he was working with the frogs and the first um date we ever went on was he took me to go see a population of the golden frogs
0: oh that's a good date good good (laughs) job man that's that was that was the day after i met her (laughs) that is smooth right there
2: (laughs) and so ever since then um I've been working, well, I was working with Peace Corps, but then I had the weekends kind of free. So I was um, volunteering and helping out different um, research, like scientists in the area, learning about the frogs. And this was before the crash happened. Um, And so I was able to learn all the names and see the tadpoles and, you you know, do the whole learn everything um, hands-on. And um, at the same time, started dating Nicardo, and I'm still here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. And Edgardo, how did you get into this? Well, it's, uh, it's a
1: crazy story, really, because uh, when I was a kid, you know, it was one of one of those things that I don't know how often happened. But when I was a kid, a little, you know, eight, nine years old, I knew I wanted to be a biologist. And I always remember this um, TV show and, uh, where I saw some Greenpeace folks going and jumping off uh, a small boat to hang uh, um, a sign of peace and stop killing the whales in the open ocean. And I also got inspired by watching like Jack Cousteau and David Attenborough documentaries. So that was it was clear in my, my head that I wanted to be a biologist and I, I didn't even know a well, biologist was but I, <laughs> I, I, I knew that when people asked me I didn't say a police or a fire department a fire officer or anything a biologist which was kind of funny because you know I grew up in a military household my dad was military his his whole life and and all my older brothers and the younger the youngest of five uh, they all kind of were into that and uh, I w- I was the weird junk you know, brother, little brother that wanted to be a biologist. So anyways, long story short, then I, my father died, blah, blah, blah. So I was 18 and started university at 19. And I started studying uh, microbiology and parasitology because, you know, as you grow up, you realize that biologists make no money. And, um, I kind of wanted to be able to make a little money, so I did a little research, and I was like, "Oh, if you study microbiology, then you can become a molecular biologist and work anything that was associated to like human health." Was uh, you will get a better rate, uh, you know, salary kind of thing. Sure, sure. That was back in the day. So anyways, I did, uh, the, in Panama, when you go to school, I don't know if that has changed because that was in 2006 and six and seven, 2007, no, sorry, 97,
0: 1997,
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you did two years of general biology and then at the beginning of your third year, you had to choose between four different branches of biology, which was botany, zoology, uh, microbiology and parasitology and environmental biology. Um, so I did my two first years, and then the two following years I was studying microbiology. And then one day, out of a sudden, a friend of mine uh, now he studied Jaguars and you know, uh, along with other friends, invited me to go to this field uh, uh, seminar to like learn how to catch and identify snakes. So I was like, mm, no, not interested. I like like really clean environment, like microbiology. I like microscopes and all that. And I I wanted nothing to do with being out in the jungle and wet and cold. <clears throat> but anyways, somehow I got convinced to go into this trip, to a place called uh, Santa Fe, my first field trip. So we go to, you know, after we hike for like two hours, It it was raining and it was muddy and all that. Then we set up camp and we go to this stream in the cloud forest. And I, you know, we found so many frogs and snakes. And and just to see where these animals live and how complex life was in in that particular place, it was too much. And I, I just fell in love with amphibians and reptiles. Like I totally... I, I just wanted to study them. So, when we came back from the, that field trip, um, I called my, my advisor and I told him I wasn't going to do microbiology anymore. And I stopped, I dropped out from, from microbiology and started the next semester to uh, study zoology from third year again. So, I did two and a half years. <laughs> In zoology and at the same time just studying and and, and reading articles everything that I could get could get a hold of uh, related to amphibians and reptiles and then I think the the crucial moment was when I read an article that was uh, about amphibian decline and and then I was like sold on like I have to work with amphibians and that's what I've been doing since 2000
0: that's amazing. Yeah. That's that's very cool. Um, now, Heidi, you mentioned something called the crash. Can you tell my listeners what the crash is?
2: The crash of amphibians. And um, my in my personal experience was in 2004, I believe. So we would go out. I would I was helping um, different um, PhD students with collect their data, and we would do transects or 200 meters in a night and we it could take us up to five hours to do to do these 200 meters just because you're finding so many frogs and you had to mark you, you didn't have to mark many, but you had to take pictures of some of them you had to do different things with all these animals so you're finding hundreds and hundreds of animals um and so the crash the way that i see it was when you could go you could go as far as you could walk in the night and you wouldn't find any amphibians anymore and so before that was happening there was reports of you know they would find dead and dying frogs out in the stream and they were being collected. Um, but it was it was quite a it was quite drastic when you would actually go back out into the field and you knew that their frogs were dying and then you could actually see that there was there's was no more frogs and it was silent and the same thing during the day. Um, you would see, you know, let's say 15 golden frogs in this one in this one section of stream. You wouldn't find any, and just the things you would find, you know, the the, the salamanders at night, you know, you would just write a hashtag because you were, you're just like a hash mark. You know, there's so many of them, you weren't even really counting them. Um, and then it was just, you know, you didn't find anything anymore. So that's kind of what the crash.
0: That's, oh, that's terrifying. That's what a heartbreaking first person account to to, you know. It's one thing to read about, oh, this happened, but it's another thing to hear what it was like to, to experience it. Um, and this was, this was the Kitrid the fungus, correct? Yeah. And correct. so um, I don't know how heavily you guys were involved in this in general, but how did we figure out what Kitrid is? And how, how have we started to figure out how to try to fix this?
1: That's a very interesting question, because, um, you know, I remember reading about it, and people used to call them the enigmatic amphibian decline, and mostly based on the, the declines of uh, the golden toad from the cloud forest of Monte Verde in Costa Rica, and uh, it happened that there was a researcher, Dr. Karen Lips, that she was working in a place near Panama in, in Costa Rica called Establas and she found some dead or dying frogs in this uh, this her study sites. And she decided to collect some of these frogs and send them over to pathology, basically. And at the same time, they found some dead frogs, Dendrovedis asurus, I believe, uh, at the National Zoo in TC. In and they did the same thing. And it happened that both samples from the field in Costa Rica and those from the National Zoo, they both had the same... Microscopic uh, structures like uh, some kind of foreign, like organism, microorganism, growing on the skin in the skin of these frogs, and it happened that they knew the pathologist and the, some of the people in the field knew that this was a new thing, but nobody was able to identify what it was until they sent samples to Joyce Longcore, a professor. I think she was in, uh, in a small university in, in North um, 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 New England area. So she happened to be one of the few researchers that was a specialist on studying kitrix, And she was able to identify not just that it was a kitrix, but it was a, a new species of uh, from this. And that's why it was named uh, Batracochytruen because it's uh, chytrid that affects batraceos or uh, amphibians and dendrovatidis because it was found in uh, the dendrovatis genus of frog from the, the, the dark poison frogs. And that's how it became the novel pathogen. It became, you know, any, it was, it was both fascinating to read about chytrid fungus when the paper came out, I think it was 1999, but also, uh, it was terrifying to, to think what this chytrid, this fungus could do to amphibians. And, and this, when I found out about it, all this was, uh, you know, after the chytrid was described and everything, about 2000, middle of 2000 to 2001. And, you know, it was the first chytrid you know, the only species of chytrid that affected a vertebrate, in this case amphibians. And, and that was basically it. We didn't know anything else about it. And uh, still today, we, we haven't figured out how the chytrid moves. You know, there's, uh, there hasn't been enough interest within the scientific community to find out the exact way how the chytrid is moving and how it goes from place to place. How can you find it in the water? And some organism aquatic organisms, uh, or if you collect water from a and bro- uh, 20 meters up in the canopy in the cloud forest, you can still get chytrid uh, as, uh, positive samples there. So it's still kind of, uh, uh, you know, in a way mysterious, but at the same time, I think we know, we know enough about chytrid now that amphibians shouldn't be disappearing or declining. But since the chytrid, the group of, of this group of fungi doesn't affect anything that's interested to humans, as crops or human health, or or you know, or charismatic animals. I don't know, like pandas, <laughs> boring mammals uh, <laughs> like elephants. <laughs> then uh, there's no money for research, you know. But it's, it's affecting you know, there's, there's probably eight thousand described species of amphibians uh, throughout the world, and the entire planet you know, one of the most diverse group of vertebrates. And we are talking about the the possible extinction of at least 4,000 of them by 2050.
0: I think that's a big deal. You know? That's a huge deal. No, that's, that's a huge deal. And we all know that, like, ecologies are interconnected. So if you want to save your cute species, you need to save the amphibians that are part of their ecology. It's all, it's all a web. No, I, I totally get that. Um, what I need one of you to do right now is give me a reason for hope, because that is possibly the most depressing thing I have heard on this podcast yet. And that's okay, because I genuinely believe that all conservation stories have to start with the depressing thing, or else you don't need to save the animal. But please give me some hope.
1: (laughs) Well, John, of course there's hope. I think that Within each biologist or each person that works on conservation out there, I think one of the main reasons why we do it is because we have hope that we can change things. And and I, I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, recently, maybe two weeks ago, I got a you know a text message on my Instagram account uh, from this person that's from a country in the Middle East. That he, as when he was a kid, he watched a documentary about about Heidi and I doing what we could to save frogs. And that inspired him to study frogs and amphibians. And then he moved to Canada. And that's, he's seeking now for uh, to, to follow a career. He's probably in his 20s, early 20s now, on amphibian or conservation in general. I think if we have that capacity to change, to give hope throughout, you know, it's, it's okay to talk about the dark and the bad things that we're doing, but use that not just like, oh, we have no hope. There's no hope for, for wildlife or the planet. It's that we can use that to inspire, inspire others to, to follow and to succeed at what we started, you know? And, and I think another example of hope is that we, we started it in 2006. When things got really bad that we were collecting just bags of dead frogs in this pristine environment, these streams, we had to do it in, we we put the frogs in two hotel rooms, you know, And, and that's where we cared for them for 14 months. We didn't have food colonies, you know, so we had to go out and collect hundreds of animals, hundreds of crickets, cockroaches, anything, anything that amphibians would eat. Even crabs, like freshwater crabs, or we had a species of frog that would eat that. And that was almost, what, 15, 16 years ago? And I think that's the biggest hope. That's one of the things that, that keep us going. Because it's very simple, John. If we didn't do that, if we didn't go through all, because it was painful. Just imagine to go out every night, whether it was raining or not, to collect hundreds of crickets and grasshoppers and cockroaches every night, and then come, come back to the hotel and feed them out. And then the next day to get up at six in the morning and clean all the, the frogs, treat all the, the sick frogs, and do the same thing, you know, for 14 months. <laughs> now that I think about it, it's like crazy. <laughs>
0: no, that, that that is very crazy. And I'm amazed you didn't get kicked out of the hotel, but but that's that's good news. <laughs>
1: Oh, the owner tried to kick us out
0: (laughs) oh no (laughs) oh boy amazing um wow yeah no that's that's incredible so then i know so growing up i was at the maryland zoo frequently and at the national zoo frequently and i know that both of those zoos um help out with the conservation efforts for the the panamanian golden frogs at least um How did you start to go? How like tell me, take me through the steps of we're living in a hotel, trying to save frogs and not get kicked out, to having international help with zoos and and people like Vicky who are you know before COVID traveling back and forth, and just all these amazing humans and places that are helping out. What was that journey?
1: Well, it's uh, it was amazing to because I. In 2000, 2001, I became like a field assistant for a project called Project Golden Frog. And I was the Panamanian student in charge of of going to the field and collecting all the field data associated to the golden frogs, all their biology, all their phenology, like where, when they breed, where, how, who eats them, what do they eat, all that information. And, you know, from 2001 to 2004, I met people like Kevin Zippel, which was a, one of my amphibian heroes, even though he's not doing amphibian conservation anymore, but he's still my hero. Uh, you know, Vicky Poole and many other people. Paul Crump from the Houston Zoo. Paul Crump at the time was uh, a zookeeper at the Houston Zoo. And uh, he was one of those persons like us that just love frogs. And every time he came to Panama, because one of the ways that the 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 Golden Frog Project had to sort of get help and, and money was to get keepers, suitkeepers, keepers, sometimes like curators or assistant curators to come to Panama for a couple of weeks. They will provide a little money to the project and they will provide help to do the field work. And it will be, you know, students or professors, everybody that, that was involved. So I, I was lucky enough to meet all these people. And then when, when the amphibian decline was happening in 2005, Um, I met with Kevin Zippel, Joe Mendelssohn, which is the curator, or at the time he was a curator of uh, herps at the Zoo Atlanta, and Ron Gagliardo, which was at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. And Ron and Joe wanted to do this um, kind of experiment or how do you call it, Um, like a pilot program to see if we could go out in the field and collect frogs um, and keep them under, like, minimum conditions, endangered species. And we selected two different sites. One site that was already affected by the chytrid fungus, which was a Copé, where I met my, my beautiful Heidi. And the other one was El Valle, where we were um, estimating that the chytrid fungus was going to arrive in a year or so from that time, you know, 2005. So we did that project, that pilot program with uh, Joe and Ron, and, and we collected frogs, and we kept them in a, in a cabin where we used to live, uh, in critter keepers, you know, those acrylic tanks, and under minimum, very minimum conditions. And we had the same thing in El cope with uh, a friend of ours, also biologist, uh, Mason Ryan. And the project was good enough. It attracted some media cover, you know, some media that created some kind of publicity within the scientific community, conservation community. And um, that then the Houston zoo uh, director at the time of uh, conservation and science, Bill constant was in Panama and he came to El Valle to, to learn about these people that were doing this crazy project. Of course, Paul Crump already set that up, you know. And uh, Bill Constant came and he talked to Heidi because at the time I was, I was looking for PhD programs so I was in the United States at the time. Um, probably getting an interview at uh, University of Old Dominion in Virginia. And uh, Bill constant was convinced that it was, it was feasible to do it. So um, then... They talked to the, the people, the, you know, the stakeholders to be, uh, you know, a small zoo in, this, in Panama City and some other people, the people at the, the local zoo here in El Valle. And it was, you know, uh, Houston Zoo was going to find all the, the money, all the financial aid that they needed. And uh, I was just going to do like an advisory, like uh, this species, this species, this is how you keep it, blah, blah, blah. But then, like many other projects that happen in Panama, for some reason, I don't know why. Don't ask me why. Um, the, f- the funds, the money that was sent was not used for what it was supposed to be used. And it was just kind of icky, you know, like ugly. And then at some point, then Houston Zoo asked me if I, w- I wanted to be in charge of the project, the construction of a facility and, and the species collection and everything. And, of course, I accepted with Heidi. And, you know, we, was, we didn't really know what we were agreeing to, you know. And, and then at the same time, we were collecting um, dead and dying frogs in the, in the field. And the facility was not finished. So I talked to the manager of the Hotel Campestre, and then he c- contacted the owner of the Hotel Campestre. And then I talked to the owner and the manager of the Hotel Campestre and told them that it was just going to be a thing, maybe a few months until we finished the facility that was being built at the zoo. And, uh, and I, I don't know what I, what I did, but I convinced the owner <laughs> that it was, it was a good idea to take two rooms and turn them into frog facilities.
0: Amazing! That is amazing.
1: Yes, and 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 yeah, we did it. But it was amazing, John. Because I mean, we had people. We had uh, Vicky Pool, of course, and we had a lot of volunteers from all over the United States, from Canada, even from Australia. We got some people from Australia that came down to help, and some people from South America, and and we used all the. I think one of the best things of of that project, of this project, was the capacity to bring people together, you know, from all different fields. We needed, you know, we had uh, plumbers from different zoos and and carpenters and, and you know, electricians, people that maybe even when they work at a zoo, they never really had contact with amphibians or reptiles. And like, I would take these guys, this, you know, normally these, these guys are like really tough. Like they don't there's no space in their brain for cute animals. You know? <laughs> Which is great. And then you take them to the field and you show them this frog and you tell them, oh, excited, how amazing it is to find these animals. And you know, by by the end, all these these guys that were like, Panama was 13, like, oh uh, they will work back at their zoo and, and they will try to come to Panama and help do electricity, do plumbing, do, you know everything and it was it was it was that beautiful it was that great you know to to bring all sorts of people together and and yeah it's i think that's that's one of the most amazing things that ever happened to me and I, you know at the same time i was with the person that uh i i didn't know at the beginning that she was going to be the one uh, but to find somebody to be that lucky um, you know, it was part of a part of the deal. I think <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is so cool. And yes, yeah. um, for those listening, I'm just gonna say that these two are adorable. Together. Um, they're sitting right next to each other and they are eyeing each other and saying sweet things to each other. And when I open up the floor to a question, um they, they point at each other. They know they know what they're doing. This is a this is a couple who works together well and plays together well, you can just tell. And I, I appreciate that Thank you. very much. Um so tell me about the center, like the the place that you guys have now. Tell me about this.
1: Like in every story, you know, there's a, there's a good part of the story. There's a great part of the story, there's a sad part of the story, and a sad, even sadder, or saddest part, you know. So let me start with this. We built that facility with a lot of, you know, work and efforts from from everybody that was involved, from from Houston Zoo to, you know, New England Zoo was a partner, Um, Royer Williams Park Zoo in um, um, Rhode Island was a partner. Uh, Toronto Zoo, you know, a bunch of different zoos, like eight or seven.
0: I have to ask for one second, just to interrupt. uh, Was it Lou Parati who you were working with that? Of course. I see heads nodding. Lou is great. I did an interview with him earlier and he is just, just incredible. Lou, I mean,
1: Lou, I, I cannot be grateful enough for having Lou as a friend, as a brother, you know, he we we went to this conference in Houston once, Heidi and I, and Lou gave this talk about these beetles. You know, he was talking about these beetles, like these were the most amazing animals. Oh <laughs> so yeah. I was like, I got it.
0: <laughs> same. We our our interview was mostly about the American burying beetle, and he he was obsessed, and he was so passionate, and it was so amazing. Yeah, he's yes. just a cool guy.
1: So, and it was that easy, you know, because he saw my talk and he was like, wow, that's passion. Like, he loves frogs. And I I saw his talk and I was like, that's passion. He loves beetles. And then we met, you know, for coffee. And, and, you know, then next thing we knew, it was Lou was coming down here to help us with the uh, insect colonies and all that. But, anyways, um, the story goes, we built this facility in 2007. Like probably we moved the frogs. We even have a small documentary that um, uh, Dan, Dan Breton from New York was a filmmaker. He was a one crew guy, one man crew. Like he'll come and he'll do all the camera and all the sound and all that. And we did this documentary It's called The Leap of Fate. And we actually moved the frogs from the hotel uh, to this new facility. Brand new. It was beautiful. And we, by the time we moved these frogs, they they were already breeding in these small plastic tanks, you know, we had marsupial frogs, we had golden frogs, we had all sorts of animals, even salamanders. And then uh, by 2009, I guess a way of, that we were showing some levels of success uh, uh, at what we were doing, because at the beginning, nobody wanted to, to really get involved like within the academia, academia, because it was a crazy idea. Like go to the field and collect animals that never have been kept in captivity before. Uh, but that's because there was never a Heidi and a of working together, you know. And uh, so then, you know, an organization came and asked us to, to work with us, and uh, they wanted to be part of the conservation in Panama, blah, blah, blah. We were like, yeah, sure, but there's animals in the Cure East in eastern Panama that nobody's doing anything with it. So why don't you go ahead and work with those and we'll help you as much as we can. And then things got a little kind of funny and, you know, because the whole idea was also to be able to control, you know, as a Panamanian, the conservation of Panamanian species should be a matter of Panamanians making decisions, nobody else. And, and that, you know, we work in collaboration. That's fantastic. But the last decision of what happened to the animals in Panama should be made. By Panamanians, if there's the capacity to do so, but sometimes there's a problem for some institutions, uh, and then at the end, uh, I quit that project because it was too crazy, you know, to to follow instructions of somebody to sitting in a, in a room, uh, you know, two thousand five hundred miles away from where the action is happening. It's to me that wasn't. I didn't sign up for that, Fair. and. Uh, I started doing some consulting work. I started with uh, a mine in, in Dominican Republic. Then I went to Peru. And, and then there was a mining operation going in Panama. And somebody got a hold of me. And, and, and I, were already, I was already working on an agreement with the, that mine in Panama before I quit. And then they, they hired me because they saw that they the agreement. And they say, like, well, this is a nice agreement. It's fantastic. But there's nobody else that can execute it. So why don't you do it? I was like, okay, so and then I convinced the the zoo where we built the evac facility here um, to allow me to build a second facility to do frogs. and they they say, okay, go ahead. So I got all the money from the mine and built a new a second facility. We also built a, an exhibition and uh, <clears throat> and then things went south, really kind of quick uh, because I was. Working on this facility next to the original facility, and my decisions didn't like uh, the people in charge of this other project w- w- weren't agreeing with my decisions and all that. And, you know, it was just one of those things that shouldn't never happen. And, but it's, it's so familiar, I'm sure, that, you know, when, when you're doing conservation, because there's a threat, a pathogen in our case, but that threat does it doesn't constitute the biggest threat. Your biggest threat is other humans that the ones or think that what you should do is what they think is right. Um, Which sometimes it is. And the thing is that towards the end, 2017 uh, this institution decided to shut down the project because they realized they couldn't pay for it. And the idea was to release the frogs and to fire everybody that was including Heidi. And, um, to shut down the facility and just leave this small zoo in, in this town with uh, a nice exhibit, exhibit and a collection of frogs. just because they deserve it. And I say, no, that's not going to happen. <clears throat> because by then my, faci- my, uh, my paperwork for the foundation was already approved by the Panamanian government and we decided to fight for it. And at the end we got... We signed some contracts with this institution and uh, we decided to split the collection. And uh, they took half of the frogs to Panama City, well, to another province in Panama, near Panama City, and we kept the other half. And this happened in, we moved our, our frogs from the original facility. This is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> because we started at Hotel Campestre, Okay. So we were there for 14 months. And we got out of a hotel, Canpeso. We went to the small zoo. It's called El Nispero Zoo in town. And we were there for about 11 years or so, from 2007 to 2019. So in May 2019, we took our frogs, our part of the frogs, out of the zoo of the El Nispero Zoo, and we moved it back,
0: guess, to where? Please don't tell me you went back to the hotel. Yes. <laughs> oh
1: no! <laughs> yes. yes, we went back to the hotel campestria, but this time we have we have uh, shipping containers, modified shipping containers. Yeah, right, we, we keep the frogs. Yes, uh, that's an upgrade.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness! So, is are you guys still at the the hotel right now?
2: Yes, we have. Um shipping containers that have frogs in it and one um that's set up for crickets so it's warmer and then one other one that's for our our supply of just our things we've collected over the years our, our deposit for now um but could also be up uh, we can put more frogs in it if the if we if we need to so and then we have another we have a cabin that this is where our exhibition would be um but yeah so That was a really long story.
0: (laughs) 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 It's a really, really good one. Hey, no picking on him. Come on now. That is a crazy story. That really is. Um, So tell me, are are y'all able to treat Kytrid once you get frogs if they are, um, you know, not dead yet?
1: Um. At the beginning, yes, there's uh, some folks in the zoo communities and veterinarians came up with this treatment. Uh, You see, a a, a veterinarian uh, normally used by veterinaries antifungal fungal drug is called itraconazole, and yes, you can. It's very invasive, and at the beginning, uh, the protocol was to you know dilute this solution. Um, in uh, like uh, get like a 0.001% concentration. Um, that's So people have an idea. It's like you take one milliliter of solution and you dilute it in 100 or 99 milliliters of water. And then you give the frogs a little bath for 10 minutes for 10 days. And it helped the frogs. But like I say, super invasive. Remember, these animals were collected. They were not captive bred animals. And most of the times, the animals, the species that we collected, including the golden frogs, they were loaded with chytrid. They were dying. Um, so our uh, success rate or survival rate wasn't the highest, uh, but we did manage to, to get some animals to, to survive. And we, we bred them. And, and we, I think the most important part, somehow, a lot of the animals that we collected, they knew that we wanted to help them. And it was what we did was with so much love and passion that I think that helped to, to give us, you know, I think that's the secret, like the secret ingredient that we have. is Like it's love. It, it's not something that you can buy. It comes with a degree. It comes from within us. You know, what we do is, is based on love. Uh, and, and I think that's how you know that's how we all should live doesn't matter what you do if if you do it with love you will be successful at it
0: absolutely and um what is what's the plan moving forward
1: well uh i'm not going to lie it's it's been really tough Mostly because, uh, like I said at the beginning, the people in charge don't consider the NGOs that, like ours, and, and and it's crazy. I was thinking about it uh, the other day. It's when you create an NGO, is a is a person not as a it's a is how can you say it? But an NGO is, is 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 an entity. It's a so is a is not a living, but it has a, a document like an ID. You know, it's like another citizen of a country, right? Right. And I realize that we've been discriminated against because when Panama, in the case of Panama, where they create all these decrees and laws of, to do like mobility restrictions and all that, they don't consider us. They don't even they don't even mention NGOs and people that works for NGOs that have live uh, collections like animals and plants, and. Uh, to do conservation, we need money. You know, it's 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 fantastic to be in love with what we do. It's great. It's beautiful. It's fantastic to to inspire people and be inspired yourself with what you're doing. But electricity, water, rent to keep these facilities uh, when you don't own this uh, piece of land. They don't care how much you love what you do. <laughs> the bank doesn't care how much you love what you do. So, frankly, is is moving forward is just to survive this pandemic, if we could, as a as as a project, uh, and it's that simple. Because you know we cannot. Heidi works there. I'm normally like doing paperwork and and trying to find money and and trying to talk to people and convince government and and doing all sorts of things. And we do have uh, two other people that works for us or for the foundation. And and those people, you know, they need to bring money home. You know, and 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 it's that simple. This uh, we we with all these restrictions and and no tourists at all. We we live in a touristic town but there's no tourism. Uh, So we cannot make money, you know, and we cannot um, do it. You know, the frogs don't know if there's a humans are going through a pandemic. (laughs) They are going through their own pandemic. And uh, so I don't know. I just hope that we can uh, continue surviving and no plans. We're not making plans. We did just get a grant to do some kind of field uh, field work to see if we can reintroduce these animals. That would be, that would be the most fantastic thing that we could have ever done. Is we we could bring some of these animals back to, to nature, with or without a pandemic, you know. Um, but our focus right now is to, to do what we can to to survive the human pandemic. Yes. In both in in all senses, like survive ourselves and, <laughs> and as a project.
0: Right. No that that makes sense. That makes complete sense. Um, but I would just like to add. Oh please do yes.
2: That we are also like right now we're in breeding season and I think that last year we were <laughs> we're just getting settled into the building and we we were you know figuring out a business plan for now we we're going to be you know tour guides and this that. and that so we we're figuring out a lot of different things and what social media was and all sorts of things that we didn't really necessarily know much about as biologists um and so last year just about getting established and you know the frogs comfortable in their new and their new facilities and whatnot and so now this year we've been able to you know outside of all the limitations that we have uh, we've been the frogs are feeling comfortable and they're they're calling and so we're, we're getting them to breed um so we're just going to push the envelope right and so if they're doing their job and they're doing what they're supposed to do and we're doing what we're supposed to do I think we just live one day at a time and we just, you know, keep the hope that, you know, this is what's supposed to happen.
0: No, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Heidi, what is your day-to-day role in the the project? I feel like from from talking to you guys a little bit, I feel like both of your roles are, hey, we do everything. But um <laughs> more than that, what is your what is your specific role?
2: Well, as a project director, I guess I would um you know, I procure things. I you know, I manage the small staff that we have, but also I do all the day-to-day stuff. Right. So right now, since there's only three of us, um, I do flies some days. I do. I take care of the frogs other days. I mean, if it's going to be breeding and things, you know, we we have a the breeding program. I I do all the breeding, the, the recommendations, and all those things. And I also am the. Um, I'm also a really good cricket farmer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is you know, so, a skill in this in this
2: situation. I'm really good. So. That's,
0: that's amazing.
2: So I cricket farm as well most days.
0: It's beyond crazy to me that I'm sitting here staring at the two of you who are sitting right next to each other. And you're the hope of of so many frogs. And so and it's underfunded and it's struggling. And it's just that's um it's just amazing to me though. Like just two people out there to save the world. That's that is it's really badass and I don't usually curse on this podcast. <laughs> but like that is really badass, y'all, and I just I need to say that. Um good good luck with it, you know? And and I will um Hopefully this will, will, you know, anyone listening to this, please, if, if you can make, make donations and check this out and spread the word. And, um, let's, let's make this a, a more known, bigger, bigger thing. Let's, let's grow this because this is incredible. And like we talked about, um, I know that I like to, to rave about red pandas on this, this podcast a lot, but, um, the whole ecology is interconnected. And, and if, 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 gross little amphibians, if you want to call them that. And I actually, I love amphibians, the slimier, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but they, they matter and your, your more charismatic species will not be okay without them. So, uh, definitely to those listening, please, please take the time to, uh, look into this further and, and, um, you know, let's, let's help out any way that we can. Um, did you guys have any thoughts on ways that people can help?
1: Uh, yes, there's. Uh, they can go to the the golden frog, the Panamanian golden frog uh, project, or Proyecto Rana Dorada, which is www. Uh, Org, and there's ways that you can donate through the through PayPal. And which, by the way, the golden frog project uh, last year and the last trimester of last year just became uh, its own 501c3. So that's also a good good news for amphibians in Panama. And and like you say, John, you see us here, um, just us, but no, this, these frogs don't depend only on us. We we are not alone, you know, we have a lot of friends and a lot of people that, that know that we're here. Unfortunately, uh, you know, unfortunately for us and for the frogs, a lot of those people are not in Panama and are not Panama. <laughs> but uh, we do have fantastic friends, uh, almost like family, people like Vicky, like Kevin, Robert, you know, Mark, those folks that every year, you know, like we, we make, we do Zoom calls for for holidays and things like that. That's how close we are. We That's our family. And we know that we're not, you know, we know that we have um, we have them, and uh, and of course, their institutions. You know, uh, that support what we do. So, but yes, donations are always good, not just for the frogs in Panama, but you know, if, if, like you say, if you think the amphibians are slimy and warty, and you don't care, you know, find a local a local project that's doing conservation in in your community. And, uh, you know, conservation is, is not a one or two people thing. It's, it should be everybody, it Should be everybody involved, everybody that cares about the planet, everybody that's, you know, aware of the fact that in order for us to breathe the air, we need other things out there to produce that clean air that we like to breathe, that we take for granted every day, you know. Um, and I ask everybody that's listening to stop just for a second and look around yourself, look around your house, your property, Look up to the sky, go out, step outside at night, and look how beautiful is the planet where we live and and give if you can help those that are doing a little bit for our species, for our environments, do so, you know and and doesn't matter. Okay? It doesn't have to be millions of dollars or thousands of dollars. Any little contribution um, is important for for people like us.
0: Amazing. I love that. That's, that's great. I, and again, just anyone listening right now, please go make a $5 donation. If that's all you can do, it's fine. Let's, let's help these fine folks out. Um, Not to take it from completely serious to completely goofy, but I do like to end every podcast with what I call the Rasafari poop (laughs) story, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. Just uh, do you have any fun or gross story? Doesn't actually have to be about poop, but uh, about your time working with animals and, and when something gross happened uh i see heidi laughing so i know that you have one and i don't mean heidi heidi is laughing at something that happened to edgardo i can already tell from watching (laughs) yes
1: i I do have a couple stories but this one in particular i think when when something like when you share something that personal with someone that you have you're gonna marry that person (laughs) So, (laughs) so i'm gonna try to make it quick so I was collecting data for my tesis and, uh, of course with amphibians, I was working on bioacoustics of the golden frogs. So I was in the field with my girlfriend, Heidi, 2004, I believe. So we go to Copé to this place called Rio Blanco. We get there really hard. We didn't have a car at the time. So we hiked and we set up camp. We, we got to bed, whatever. So the in the morning, um, uh, you know, nature calls course. So I'll go with my little shovel, make a little hole away from the river, oh, everything. And I take a big old one, you know, I just, I just went poop. <laughs> and then as I'm getting ready to stand up, I see little maggots crawling all over my poop, oh. like little tiny, tiny maggots. So I was like, holy sh-. So I call Heidi, like, I didn't know this is two thousand and four. we met in two thousand and three. I didn't know that I was going to marry her, but I guess we were already like to at that level that I call her up so she she could see my poop <laughs> and all these little maggots just just crawling around my my steamy poop <laughs> so I thought and remember I did microbiology before, so. In a way, was, I'm was i still a little bit of a freak about microorganisms and things. So I was like, I'm dying. Like, if, if I have that much, that many worms coming out of my body, like, I am dying, Heidi. We got to go. So cheap, she was like, sure. So we packed and we, we went straight to the hospital. And I was freaking out. I told the doctor, doctor, I'm dying. I'm full of maggots. I'm, I'm full of, I'm, I'm totally, I'm dying. Like I pooped and my poop was just covered with, with them. I was like, all right, let's get a, you know, fecal test. And sure enough, it came, I mean, it, it came clean. The doctor was like, no, you have no parasites. It was good. I was like, oh, these, these people, they don't know anything. <laughs> And uh, fortunately enough, instead of going to Panama City to get further tests, I went back to the field because I still, I had to collect the data. You know, I had to collect the frogs calling and all that. This time Heidi stayed behind. She she couldn't go. So I did the whole thing again. Set up my camp, went to bed. Next morning, super early, just went, you know, take care of business. And as I'm doing it, I see this. Bastards, little flies flying in and laying, dropping, living <laughs> larvae. you know. I was, I mean, it was the happiest, it was the, the <laughs> happiest moment of my life looking at my poop and these flies like, oh my God, you bastards. I'm not dying. You're just a fly that, that drops instead of eggs. They they drop eggs and the eggs hatch with the the temperature of the of the fecal. And and that's, and they, I mean, it was amazing. You know, one of those biology stories that is like, wow. So I had to call Heidi and give her the good news.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. That is, that is amazing. I hope it wasn't that gross, you know. No, but... perfect. I love it. This is, this, is, this is why I do these. It's amazing. Oh, so good. All right. Well, thank you both so much for doing this. You're welcome. Thank you. I, I...
1: Yeah, it's it's
0: great. You know, in the few weeks since I recorded this interview, I have to tell y'all, um I cannot stop thinking about the two hotel rooms filled with the hope of so many amazing species. That speaks to what conservation looks like in the world to me possibly more than anything I've ever learned about on this podcast. I'm so grateful to be able to share that story with you and to Heidi and Edgardo for all the work they're doing and the time that they took to do this interview with me. Uh, If you'd like to support what they're doing, and again, please do, you can check out the Project Golden Frog website at uh, ProyectorAnadorada.org. That's P-R-O-Y-E-C-T-O-R-A-N-A-D-O-R-A-D-A.org. And that will be in the show notes, of course. You can also learn more about the El Valle Amphibian Conservation Center Foundation at evaccfoundation.org, and also find them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at evaccfoundation. And uh, also, you know what? I'm not even going to say try and support Ross at Patreon this time. If you've got a couple bucks laying around, let's help these guys out. Let's let's throw them a couple bucks and really show them that we appreciate the amazing work that they are doing right now. Um, Yeah, that's really all I have to say about it. I'm still blown away by this entire interview what amazing humans and I cannot wait to see the impact that they're going to have on these incredible and necessary slimy little species alright y'all here come those credits or as I like to call them the styderk well that's our show for this week I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it our theme song is sevens by Nathan Burke performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi listen and subscribe on any podcast app please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast you can find rossafari on instagram facebook and twitter at rossafari on the web at rossafari.com or email me directly at rasafaripod at gmail.com now stop listening to me and go visit a zoo